Welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. On today's episode, I host Bruce Daisley, who is the Vice President of Twitter responsible for EMEA region. Bruce is passionate about change in the workplace and thus is an author of the best-selling book, Joy of Work, and the host of the podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I had a chance to interview Bruce at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. On the podcast, we discussed the evolution of social media, the use of machine learning at Twitter, relation between work and AI, and the worrying trends that he observes in work. Stay tuned and listen on. Good morning, Bruce. Morning. Morning. Welcome uh, to our yet another episode at uh, Be Change Repeat. And uh, welcome, Bruce, to Rotterdam. Here we are today uh, with you. We are very honored uh, to host you. And we'd be love. We would love to talk about um, your role at Twitter, as well as your space of interest, work, and how artificial intelligence is both used at Twitter and further how it impacts work. So, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Bruce, why don't you briefly introduce yourself in terms of your um, career so far? What have you been up to? And um, a few words maybe at your time at Google and how you ended up at Twitter and what are you up to now? Yeah, so my job is at, at Twitter. I'm I'm EMEA, uh, sort of Europe and Middle Eastern Vice President. I'm responsible for, I guess, the, the things that we measure success as, uh, the advancement of Twitter's reputation, advancement of Twitter's audience and advancement of our revenue across those territories. Um, I've been at Twitter for about eight years. Like you say, I was at Google, YouTube before. Um, and so for, for me, my responsibility is to just really try to ensure that Twitter's perceived in a good light, but also that we're growing Twitter's business. So, you know, Twitter, I think, uh, is about 13 years old. And uh, during that time, it probably took us a long while to to really establish our business credentials. But now we're a profitable business, and we're doing really well. Fantastic. Um, so let's let's walk you uh, let's walk through the space of social media. Right, it uh, came in around about fifteen years ago, and then the whole world now cannot live without social media. Now, how do you assess the impact of social media on society? Like, what are the main positive things that society has gained and uh, what are the things that you would want people to be aware of? Okay, so the, the interesting thing about social media is that each of the successive steps leads to the next step. So, you know, the the way that Twitter started, it was a way to, um, it's hard to conceive of a time now where our mobile devices aren't connected to the internet. But Twitter came around at a time where a few people had WAP connections to the internet, but they were right. very slow. They were pretty uh, rudimentary. And so Twitter at the time was a way for you to text an update to a short code number that would update all of your friends what you were doing. Very much like a status message. So, you know, uh, people who used um, Yahoo Messenger or MSN Messenger or ICQ would could have a status and, and Twitter was a way to update your status. So it might be, I'm listening to this, I'm watching this, I'm doing this. Um, and it evolved from there. So we've we've seen an evolution of initially people use that for status updates. Then they use it to actually to indicate to their friends where the, their friends will find them. And so 
each successive stage has led to further stages and further development. And we see this still now. So, you know, when we look at social media now, there's an evolution in the way that the platforms worked. I think five years ago, broadly, you would probably say that there wasn't as much differentiation between Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, for example, as there is now. It's pretty clear now that you come to Twitter to talk about news and what's happening. You go to Facebook to stay connected with your probably wider family, you know, your sort of grandparents and, right, and aunties. Right, yeah. um, Instagram is about beautiful images. You know, for a long time when Instagram first got going, people used it to document the food they were eating, you know, right, exactly. a lot of yeah. pl- plates of food, right? And and that's evolved and changed. So I think we, we see each step of the way, the way that people use different platforms is changing, advancing, developing. And I suspect that will continue. People are using Twitter increasingly to connect with what's happening. Broadly, you could sort of summarize that as the news that's relevant to you. So it might be you might support Ajax or you might be interested in what's happening in politics or you might be just following a TV show and you want to see what people, people are saying about that TV show. So it tends to be the place that you go and discuss those things rather than I don't think you would post um I don't think you'd post wedding photos to Twitter. I don't think you'd post photographs about your your birthday party to Twitter. You might do, but it, I think different platforms are developing different different cadences, different rhythms, different um textures really. Indeed. And I think uh, one of the questions that Twitter answers is what's happening. Right. And uh, one of the personal anecdotes when I was uh, preparing also for this interview, I asked some of my friends, how do they use Twitter? And one of my friends uh, said she was, um, I use Twitter uh, because on Twitter, I would get to know uh, while she was living in Paris, she would get to know about any changes in the railway faster than the actual native app that they had. So, you know, that just that just goes to prove the point that um, Twitter is where things happen. Twitter is where people get to know all the good as well as sometimes the, the bad news first. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, and, and that's the, I think that's the thrilling element because it's real time. So, yeah. you know, you can turn off the real time element, but I think most people love that, that crackle of the, the vibrancy of whatever's just happened, you'll hear it straight away. So, you know, I've been to, to your point that it can be good news and bad there was uh, a couple of years ago there was a big explosion mm-hmm. in the area i was living and i turned on my news and there was nothing on there right. i opened twitter and immediately heard exactly where it was what it was and what the what the cause of it was so actually it was just a um it was a, a benign explosion but just goes to illustrate really that often that citizen-sourced news can be incredibly fast. Indeed, but that also, so what happens is we have not only democratized access, but also made everybody into a reporter. So anybody at any point in time, all it takes is we all have the reporting or recording machines with us, which are smartphones, which are fully capable of recording video and audio and taking pictures and putting it up on the platform. So now that comes with a lot of responsibility. Right. So if we um, make every citizen able of uh, positioning newsworthy article or, you know, a statement online with where with one button of a uh, one click of a button, you can reach thousands of people um, that can influence a lot of people. And that, of course, uh, at this point, we, there's a lot of discussion on uh, beat fake news and things like that. So 
what do you what would you say to the wider audience on how should people be guiding themselves in terms of their ethical values possibly to how to properly use these kind of platforms because it gives a lot of yeah. extra power right i think the description you gave was slightly too simplistic so firstly you know any reach that someone earns is an earned reach mm. so you know i could set up an account now and start posting untruths, but I've got an audience of zero. And, you know, right. m- maybe I would, le- through sort of hard work, I would get to an audience of a few hundred. But it's it's not just a default that you can go and start spreading falsehoods and expect to have a platform. And so then, consequently, you might find that audiences have got big uh, posters who've got big audiences yeah. might be able to do those things. But there's a reputational damage. If I'm a TV, TV celebrity, if I'm a politician, if I'm a footballer, and I start posting falsehoods, then that immediately damages my reputation, that people will immediately perceive me for those things. So so these these aspects are, um, in fact, the, the critical thing I would say is that because Twitter is an open and public mm-hmm. platform, you, you very rarely encounter the challenges that you get with some of the social media where stories are being posted that no one knows about. So let me give you really specific examples. During the 2016 American presidential election, the two most shared stories on Facebook were that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump and that Hillary Clinton was gravely ill. And neither of those stories developed any momentum on Twitter. The reason why is because if someone posts that story, immediately in the replies, you'll see uh, you'll see that a, a huge amount of volume is given to someone who, probably from a reputable news organisation, right. will say that's not true. Mm. So immediately the story passes with this commentary, and I think that's a really critical differentiation. It means because Twitter is an open public platform, that doesn't mean that you won't find falsehoods on there, but the 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 transparency that people are able to challenge those things and, and really sort of question the truth of them is much more easy. That doesn't mean that we rest on our laurels. That doesn't mean that we're complacent about those things. But it does mean that we think one of the reasons people often say that sunlight is the best disinfectant, you know, the fact that light is shining on these these mm. things means that if someone is setting out to say something that's demonstrably untrue, then generally there'll be the the oxygen of people challenging that and, and sort of questioning whether that's true. Right. And then on the other hand, there is a lot of, um, uh, let's say, uh, topics which have been considered to be taboo or not been given light previously, but now thanks to democratic access, a lot of people can voice their opinions and they have gotten support from other people around the world where even things such as, you know, the LGBT rights, for example, got a lot of support on platforms such as Twitter, where previously traditional media would never support it. I I think this is really critical. So, you know, if we look at what societal changes have happened in the last 15 years, these are the, you know, the, the way the way that marriage equality has spread so rapidly around the world Indeed. is remarkable yeah. compared to even if we wound the clock back, we can go back and, and watch footage. I, I This one sticks in my mind. I, I spend a lot of time looking at American politics. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Hillary Clinton was, I think in the, the year 2002, was saying she didn't want to see marriage equality. She wasn't in favour of it. Now we, we wind the clock forward and... It would be a politician who was risking 
the the judgment of, of the wider electorate who came out and made comments like that. So it just goes to show how the mainstream has shifted. And I think it comes from the fact that when we see, when we're able to empathise with real people, when, when we're able to hear the stories of real individuals that maybe aren't given voice in mainstream media, we immediately as humans have got an innate desire to empathise and to connect. And so, you know, personally, my feeling is that one of the societal changes that has most radically developed um, is is things like the sort of the the marriage equality, the the LGBT rights. But I think we're we're also seeing in in wider societies around the world the opening up of societies like Saudi Arabia probably the last remaining uh, apart from North Korea the last remaining place that you weren't even able to to be a tourist in Saudi Arabia until about three or four months ago but we're seeing opening of those societies largely because social media is giving us a window into the nuance of the of these places that I think probably we were a bit too simplistic about before. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is a very interesting case study, right? It's a a country where, you know, until recently there has been no music uh, that was allowed and there is also lack of uh, radio where you would have open entertainment. So... And it's interesting to observe the change because that that's something which we could, you know, I think is this case to study where over time and probably the change is going to happen very soon because as soon as people have open access, you know, it, it's a matter of number of um, bottom up initiatives that are that is going to bring back uh, bring Saudi Arabia up to the global standards on, on that as well. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, all of these closed cultures, I think, are starting to see a real shift. You know, when we look at Saudi Arabia, they broadly, they love YouTube, they love Snapchat, they love Twitter, largely because the um, the main authorised media, the, the TV channels, the radio channels, have never allowed this plurality, this yep. diversity of, of, of content. And so they're huge consumers of the internet. So just goes to, to illustrate that there's an open-mindedness that might not necessarily be reflected indeed. in their traditional media. Indeed, indeed, and there's a lot of Arabic content coming up. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So uh, so you, in your role as a vice president of Twitter for EMEA, how do you see the difference in how the platform is being used around the world? If, you, if we compare the space that so you're operating in and compare that to the biggest market for Twitter, which is United States. Uh, Japan, we're bigger than Facebook in Japan. So, so well, you know, geographically, po- population-wise, the US is the biggest, but we're, it's not our biggest market for stock. Okay. So Japan, you know, we're bigger than Facebook. It's a colossal platform in Japan. You know, in terms of audience penetration, there's there's a number of places that they consume more Twitter than the US, but obviously the US is the most populous. Right. And do you see a significant difference in how the platform is being used between the US and the rest of the world? Yeah, there's, there's um, I think the US sees Twitter as a really big part of the media. So, you know, if a player from the Golden State Warriors comes mm-hmm. off the, the court, he'll immediately tweet. Um, if these uh, the Oscars, then you'll find some of the people from the Oscars will be will be tweeting. So, so it's a really big part of the celebrity infrastructure, the right. sporting infrastructure. We see differences in Japan. A lot of people use it with private accounts, or they use it as a means of of expressing themselves just about their real life. We see, you know, 
a lot of people have multiple accounts in Japan reflecting the fact that we've got different friendship groups. Mm -hmm. So th there are definitely different patterns of behavior. Almost common through most things, Twitter seems to be a place where people love talking about politics, people love talking about sport. Things where, to your earlier point, where there's an advantage of hearing exactly what's happened right to the very second, those things seem to work really well on Twitter. Right. Um, I mean, speaking of politics, I mean, we cannot have this discussion without mentioning one of your biggest fans, the D Donald Trump. And um, what, do you, what do you think of, uh, you know, Donald Trump has given Twitter this sort of, you know, he has chosen this as the main mode of communication, more or less, with the world, right? So now, does that come with a large sense of responsibility or is that a natural way for any platform to progress and say, okay, now we have reached a status where, you know, this has become a primary mode of communication for one of the most influential people in the world? It's really interesting because um, when in the 2008 election, Barack Obama used the infrastructure of the internet, the sort of the nascent form of the internet to develop hundreds of thousands of donors, to distribute himself with A-B testing. Correct. Yeah. Um, everyone said, what a marvellous use of technology. <laughs> yes. Almost yeah. wearing yeah. their own opinions and their right. own sort of prejudice. Um, when Donald Trump comes along, uh, sort of eight years later, people say, oh, this use of technology isn't as as appropriate. I'm, I'm not as supportive. And I think, look, the fundamental truth of this, uh, of politics is this, and of all distribution, is that the politicians who come after Donald Trump will be even more sophisticated in their use of technology. And we can't imagine that we're going to go back to an era where politicians don't use all social channels to, to get their message across. We've seen in the world of celebrity, the world of celebrity used to be about giving exclusive photo shoots to certain magazines. And that was the access. Access was really critical. Now what we've seen, these celebrities post their own photographs mm -hmm. and build their own path to an audience. Exactly. And yeah. so those things have been disintermediated. They've happened in celebrity. They've happened in sport. And they're happen happening in politics. And I think sometimes just because we might prefer one politician or another right. politician, mm -hmm. we can end up saying this is good or this is bad. I think what Donald Trump is very sophisticated at doing in his, in, a, in a sort of very simple way, but just getting his message across. And, you know, very reductive. He's a politician built for, in the old days, 140 characters, now 280 <laughs> characters. He gets a simple message across and he says it a lot. And irrespective of your own judgment on his approach, I think it's inevitable that what will follow is politicians who are equally adept. No, indeed. And uh, and that, that is true. And um, what is also interesting, if you look at the previous elections uh, in Ukraine, yeah, President Zelensky is considered to be sort of first digital president because he got to where he got without holding a single physical rally. So that is also quite interesting because that's where the mass is moving and communication is moving and um, a lot of the traditional thoughts of how to engage audiences are being questioned and uh, new modes of communication are coming up. Now, um, but, but let's let's like see, to, to add to that, you know, Greta Thunberg has become... Mm. the most famous person in the world under uh, under 20 
in 18 months. Indeed. And through the platform that social media has given her. So it's transformational, it's revolutionary, and it goes to all sides of the political spectrum. It just illustrates really that if you've got a message and if you've got a... Um, a coherent way of delivering it, these platforms can can revolutionise the scale of your communication. Indeed, indeed. But what would your comment be on the, the fact that Jack Dorsey previously um, mentioned about uh, banning political ads uh, on Twitter? Now, uh, what does that say about uh, the future landscape? I think we're just in the middle of doing that right now, so we haven't announced the full details. But I think what we're really clear on is that we don't want, uh, you know, the, the significant platform that we provide, we don't want to enable money to manipulate that. And I think, you know, especially in the US, politics is synonymous with money. It's, yeah. it's filled yeah. with, with big money. Um, in every election bar one, uh, every presidential election by one, the candidate with the most money has won the election. Uh, the exception will surprise you. And so um, and so we, we've seen that sort of money and politics is synonymous there. And I think our feeling is, because we recognise how powerful social media is, we've s- decided to say we're going to take a step back from taking um, money in, in those situations. Um, I think, you know, the, the we're, we're just getting into the details of it, specifically how we draw all that, but we're, we're keen to do the right thing. Indeed, but of course it does have an impact on the business model and, um, you know, because... Uh, not really, it's, it's, it's less than half a percent of our revenue. Okay. So it's more really about the disproportionate impact it will have in certain really tense and, and sort of emotionally charged moments. It's interesting if we look at Twitter as a company, uh, if you look at Facebook, we look at uh, other social media, they've gone sort of, you know, acquiring or merging and bringing on other social media uh, platforms together. I mean, especially Facebook, right? So with the acquisition of um, WhatsApp and Instagram, also if we look at LinkedIn, you know, it's a, it's a bigger part of Microsoft. Now, Twitter on that level has remained fairly exclusive. You know, it hasn't gone into big acquisitions or why is that? Is there a reason uh, why, uh, so Twitter said, okay, well, this is our core business and this is what we're going to do? Um, I mean, you know, back in the day when Instagram was was just about a, a, a nascent app, we, we bid for Instagram. Um, but I think, you know, critically what we've been focused on, we're a, a classic business case study for you because what we've tried to do over the last three or four years is is achieve more by doing less. Mm. So when Jack Dorsey came back as chief executive, he said, look at this, we're doing a dozen things really badly. How about we do two things really well? Right. Or one thing really well. So we had a lot of things. I'll give you an example. The discussion, it's sort of easy to forget these things, but the discussion four years ago was, are you introducing face filters? Are you introducing face masks? That was like, you remember Masquerade had just mm-hmm. launched, Snapchat was doing it. The, the question was, what, <laughs> right. are you, what are you doing to introduce face filters? And, that, and we went through some reductive thinking. We were like, well, what is Twitter here for? Twitter here is here to say what's, to show what's happening. And so people for putting face filters right. on, does that enhance you showing what's happening? Our take was, no, it doesn't. Mm. In fact, you know, if you open the Twitter camera, um, by design, the Twitter camera opens outwardly because Twitter tends to be a medium where you show what's happening. Correct. 
you don't show you. So the camera opens on Snapchat, it opens to you right. because it's about you. Right. And so that I think that's a really important tonal difference. And what Jack Dorsey did when he came in is he said, right, we're going to focus on, we're going to do less, but let's do it better. So the consequent thing of that is that we sit there all the time thinking, okay, as we're developing product features, how can we enhance how people stay connected with their passions, stay connected with what's happening? How can they see the latest alerts of the things that are interesting? And it helps determine our product roadmap. But what it means is that we don't sit there saying, okay, what's the latest social app that's coming along? Shall we just buy it? Indeed. I mean, so being true to your mission, right? And uh, I think that that's interesting because since very beginning, you've had to be very bold about the fact that, okay, this is the number of characters and this is exactly what we want to put through to the world, regardless of all the changes and, you know, improved bandwidth and entrance speeds and everything. So now uh, an interesting thing on how the, um, you know, if we look at social media, right, and the people that we choose to follow, it often raises the question of, do we not close ourselves off to opposite points of view, right? If I continuously follow people on the right, I'll move to the right. If I continuously follow people on the left, I'll move to the left. Now, is there a way to balance people's opinions? Or The, the really interesting thing about that is that we spent a lot of time trying to, to, hit, to puncture that because you, you often hear discussions and people will always diagnose others but never themselves. Exactly. So, so, so people <laughs> yeah. will say, oh, you know what's going on? Everyone's in a filter bubble. Yeah. So here's what we started doing. We started showing um, likes from different perspectives in people's timeline. So people would be scrolling through their timeline and they would get, oh, people you follow have, have liked this. It was by far our most unpopular feature. Uh, people hated it. We sh started showing diverse perspectives. We started to ensure that there was more uh, heterogeneity. There was like a, a more sort of pluralistic perspective. And people generally end up saying, I want other people to be outside of their filter right. bubble, but I want to follow what I want to follow. Really interesting about um, how you can try to diversify does diversify those things. Clearly, I'm, I'm British. In Britain, there was a really interesting Twitter thread a couple of weeks ago where a guy said that he'd had a perspective on the Brexit discussion. And the first thing he'd done was, um, after being sort of resolute that he knew what the answer to Brexit was, he started following other people uh, with a different perspective just to see what their perspective was. And he, he, he said he came to a realisation that the the perspective that he'd gathered had been just opinion. It hadn't been based on fact. And so he was really struck by the fact, the, the evidence that when he looked into it, he felt his opinion was changed and was different. So look, two things about that. We know that when people see a broader perspective, their opinions stop being so dichotomous that, you know, this or this, people start recognising that often the truth is somewhere in the middle. Correct. Um, but in addition, you know, we, we know that it's not an easy thing to solve, that us saying people need to hear this and hear this is is never quite that easy. Interesting. Now, now moving the discussion to the space of uh, artificial intelligence, it's something which, you know, majority of uh, top thinkers... Uh, Considering and its different impact on, um, let's say, how people govern themselves at work as well as in their free time, and uh, Twitter is a um, you know 
by definition or by nature, a digital a software company. Mm-hmm. Now, what role does artificial intelligence play in your platform and to, to start off with? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's transformational. It's uh, it's transformed our product development on a sort of series of really small things that are having a massive impact. So let me give you a perspective. One of the most important jobs for us at Twitter is to make the platform safe and to, to reduce abuse. Um, we've made machine learning plays a pretty fundamental part of that. So half of all the accounts we suspend now are suspended before a person reports them. That's really critical because until now, the burden fell fell to human beings. If you felt offended, attacked, abused, you needed to then, in your moment of feeling upset, you needed to report something. Now, half of all of the accounts that are suspended are suspended before humans even got to them. That's really critical because it means that the 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 burden is no longer passed on to the victim. Mm-hmm. It's passed on to the person responsible. And machine learning has really helped with that. And the great thing is we can teach the, the machine learning uh, programs that we're using, we can teach them all the time. So, you know, there are, there are immensely complex things uh, involved in those in those discussions. You know, it might be that certain curse words, we... It's very easy. People often say, why don't you ban that word? Why don't you ban that word? And then when you go and look at the use of the word, you go, okay, well, three quarters of the uses are music lyrics. Right. Then the rest of it is people who are following each other, who seem to be friends in a friendship group, insulting each other as sort of playground abuse. Right. And so you realize, okay, these things are really complex, but you can teach those those patterns of behavior to um, machine learning d- programs. So you can say, okay, if everyone follows each other and no one's reported it and people are exchanging words that are otherwise unsavory, we work on the basis everyone is consensual in that. And, you know, it, it means we learn little patterns of behavior. If someone creates a brand new account and immediately doesn't follow anyone and immediately then sends an app message to someone who doesn't follow them, we know that that's a sign that someone has created what we call a sock puppet account. So they've created an <laughs> yeah. account just to do abuse and we immediately don't show that tweet to the person. So yeah. it's just... You know, it really helps us in, you'll never beat people who are set about trying to use these platforms for bad bad objectives, but we can actually do really clever things to minimize the impact. Interesting. What about deep fakes? And uh, I mean, so fake messages on text, we have sort of been able to differentiate, okay, well, this is does not fit certain values or certain things I've previously read, so I avoid that. But there's a saying in many languages, whatever I see is truth. Now, when that's something which we are brought up with, and then we start seeing deep fakes, and over time they're getting better, is that something that uh, you are concerned about, and uh, what can be done in that case? Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably one of the biggest things that we're going to wrestle with. And if if we're wrestling with it in a really sort of your last question kind of way now, then I suspect it will move right up the agenda. And these, you know, I think we all need to have a dialogue on it. We all need to think really intensely about it. Here's one of the challenges is that um, it's really difficult to be the arbiter of truth for anything. Exactly. So if if I tweet you um, or if I post on Facebook or Instagram that this is true and this isn't true, then the job of anyone saying whether these things are true or not 
it's it's almost impossible for anyone to you know politicians can stand up and they can both give it a, a perspective of truth and to some extent you can fact check and say well both of these things are broadly true right. but they seem to be in opposition to each other so if we ended up trying to sort of arbitrate on those things it's immensely complex the issues of deep fakes um i don't think anyone's got the resolute answer yet of what the right thing to do is we need to have a discussion on it we need to have a debate on it um you know when these things are weaponized i think it will represent a, a big threat to to how we think about veracity and truth. Yeah, it's, it's a massive debate. Yeah, I mean, as soon as we get closer to the, I think the next presidential elections in US, a lot of new tools or new activities will start arising. So I think you're on tiptoes sort of to determine, right, what is coming up and um, how to handle that. Mm. So the other space, I mean, of course, of your major interest is work. And uh, with, again, advent of artificial intelligence and the scare with a lot of people, oh my God, we're losing jobs. Now, what do you say to that? And most of the answer from your book was, we need to remain curious and we need to remain creative, right? So how would you say uh, general society should be preparing or already be prepared for the tremendous changes that are happening in the space of work. Yeah, there's a strange thing happening where if you look into the qualities that we need to prevail when machine when computers when artificial intelligence starts stealing parts of our jobs, um we need to go into the things that computers aren't good at. And the legal I spoke to a group of lawyers last week, the legal profession are right in the zone where they are already seeing massive investment into artificial intelligence because Effectively, the legal profession is is pattern recognition yeah. in complex yeah. documents. So you've got a 120-page document. Uh, the whole of law is based on precedent. So if you can spot three precedents in this document Indeed. that will win the case for you, yeah. then... Uh, then it's incredibly effective. Now, till now, we've used human beings to spot those trends, right. and it's incredibly laborious. The legal profession is going to go into an era where the need for people is transformed. Now, does it mean that the legal profession will employ fewer people in 10 years than it does now? I suspect I'm not sure that that's the case, but they will probably be doing different things. So, you know, almost certainly the legal profession will need expertise in expediting these things that happen, but they probably won't be in terms of going through trying to spot those trends and precedents. Really rates, raises an important question then. So if, if and almost any time technology has come around, and we, we shouldn't treat this as a trend that is going to be the same forever, but almost every time that technology has come around, there's been a greater requirement for human beings rather than a smaller requirement. But that shouldn't necessarily be a guaranteed. But what it does mean is that if there is going to be a role for humans, we need to get ready for the things that humans are going to be more versatile and and, and more suited to. And they are generally in areas of inventiveness, ingenuity, originality. I sort of hesitate from using the word creative, creativity because we all feel that we're not creative. Mm. But human beings are better at these things. And the challenge we've got with modern work is that, unfortunately, over the last 10 years, the operating system of modern work that we've allowed to foster is one of stress, overwork, sometimes called workism, this idea that you know yeah. work becomes the defining part of our life. And when we look at those two trends... And identity. Absolutely. When we look at those two things in aggregate, it seems that that 
constant perpetual working that sort of that that um that's focus on relentless work is leading to burnout and burnout is incompatible with creativity. People are never their most imaginative selves when they're in a state of sort of physical and mental exhaustion. So it poses some really fundamental questions and there are people having their discussion, you know, when we're recording this, there was the, there was the news item last week that Microsoft in Japan had for the the summer had gone down to a four day week. So there is a debate taking place. There are people having the discussion about how we can do things differently, but I just, um, I feel that probably we've not reached bottom yet before we look at those things. Right. So, so that begs the question of, uh, of course, to the leadership of how uh, work should be transformed. And wh- how do you, in your work, uh, make sure that your team is, you know, having that time to reflect on what they do, understand the values and um, be in the productive best? There's a really interesting thing that we're, we're starting to understand, which is that, um, that there's a strange relationship between control and um and how people feel so when people feel like they're in control it's in incredibly liberating power is disinhibiting if you watch leaders mm. if you watch you know celebrities they they are less troubled by inhibitions than maybe right. the general population the lack of power is inhibiting Meaning that, you know, if you've got a boss, if you've got three or four layers above you, you tend to be meeker, you tend to be more conscious of your actions. But what we see in aggregate is that when people have an absence of power, it can force them into a subservient situation. And that has an impact on them, on their psychology, on their physiognomy. You know, actually repressing your emotions can lead to depression. Strange thing where actually when we're sort of, we're trying not to be our real version of ourselves, we, we can actually see a, a negative impact of that. And I think, you know, it's, it's really critical for us to, to recognize that and say, okay, what can any of us do to make people feel like they're less controlled and they are in control? So, you know, can people feel like they can make a difference in their job? Can people feel like they can make decisions and those decisions will stick? Can people feel like they can go to work and make a contribution? Because if they can't, if they're going to work, sitting in meetings, feeling like everything they suggest to their boss doesn't happen, then actually it produces a pretty miserable state of, of existence, really. So my my critical thing is trying to understand how I can make people feel like they're in control, they can get things done. And the balance of that is really interesting. For example, one of the most powerful things that any of us can do to feel less overwhelmed, feel refreshed by work, is to take a lunch break. Right. You know, the, as simple as that. Very simple. Yeah. However, if you if you stand at someone's desk and instruct them to take mm. a lunch break, so you're removing control. If you instruct them to take a lunch break, in fact, the that autonomy, that removal of autonomy, makes the makes their situation worse, not better. Really interesting. You know, we've got to be in a situation we we feel like we're in control. And um, the absence of control is what's starting to characterize modern work. That's interesting. But uh, so that begs the question, okay, well, so what we should be providing is autonomy. Number one, do, do you believe that everybody is ready for that sense of autonomy? Or is that something that has to be trained over time? And number two, how do you run a large organization where everybody has a high sense of autonomy. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, look at toddlers. You know, if 
toddlers have a will, a desire, a sort of a, a willfulness to, to do what they want. And we train it out of individuals. We train it out of kids. We train it out of school pupils. We train it out of students. And then what happens is people reach adulthood right. or they reach a job where they've been taught, don't <sighs> express your thoughts, your thinking, your desires, because you need to, you need to be in a managed state. And so I'm convinced that human beings have got this innate mm-hmm. uh, willingness to explore things, but we've, we've repressed it out of the system. I'm, consumed i'm obsessed with workplace culture absolutely and there's a there's a real uh, interesting thing that while there's lots of things 99 things out of 100 that were wrong with uber it's fascinating to dissect what uber got right along the way so if we were treating uber like a success story that we we're all appraising one of the things we would say is isn't it fascinating that they took people who were running Starbucks branches and they turned them into managers of Uber in Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, and they gave them a whole city and giving people the the ability to do things to have an impact fueled explosive growth. When you give, even people who might do jobs that you, you're not, these aren't MBA graduates. Right. These aren't like elite university graduates. But these are people who've demonstrated that they've got a degree of capability. They've become right. a manager of a store. That's, you know, it, it shows that they're responsible individuals. But you then give them the power to have a really big impact. Wow, human beings seem to be capable of remarkable things. And that's the that's the strange thing about modern work is we take this explosive technology. You know, if human beings, if human brains had been invented now, we would be saying, wow, just this this is the greatest invention ever created. And yet what we do, <laughs> wouldn't we? Right. We'd yeah, be yeah, saying, yeah, look at the capability of this. Yeah. It's unlimited capacity yeah, to learn, unlimited capacity to adapt and develop incredible resourcefulness and yet what we're doing is we're saying okay don't do that don't do this and we're imposing so many rules that what happens repression leads to depression what happens is that we take this incredible technology and we limit it to the extent it doesn't actually it's it's unrewarding for the people doing it and it doesn't anywhere reach its its potential that's very interesting because in a way every if you look at all job descriptions that basically says this is what you do and this is what you don't do and and it is matched to the single piece of paper, which is what we call our CV, which says, this is what I'm good at. I can do this and this for you. But then how often do we give that space to people to be creative and say, well, can I do this and that, right? When Google sort of introduced the 20% rule, that was quite revolutionary in a lot of places. And I uh, faced that previously as well, where you try to bring that in and say, you know what? Fridays, we're going to let people to work in completely something new. And that has an immense effect on, it, it has an emancipatory effect on certain people. But then what you see from a management perspective, often companies are quite scared to do that. They don't know if um, this would be a right thing. What would you say to the leadership on that be? Yeah, look, you know, I, th- I think globally, the whole of work uh, is wrestling two issues. A productivity issue. Yeah that we've seen technological advances in the last 20 years that are without precedent. They're just extraordinary. Um, What your phone can do now, 20 years ago, it just, it was inconceivable that that would, that would happen. And yet we've seen no increase in, in 
productivity. Right. It's remarkable. Uh, in fact, if you look at the way that people are actually working longer, they're working about 20% longer, actually productivity has declined in some right. ways. So just it's, it's like this big conundrum. Why, why has productivity not gone up? Um, and I think, you know, we're in, we're in a zone right now where we've all got to answer that question, what's gone wrong and, and how, can we, how can we reap the benefits? Now, one of those things is that, you know, to, to the point there, we've given such tight guide, guide rails to what people are meant to do that what we find that when we give people the, our equivalent at Twitter of, of 20% time is Hack Week. We do Hack Weeks twice a year. Most of our product development comes out of it. And um, it's just a good way to try and give that sense of unchecked imagination the scope to, for, for people to explore it. But whatever route you take to to achieve those things, I think it's pretty clear that allowing people more opportunity to express their full talents and their full capabilities seems to be one of the things that drives our joy of our work. Incredible. So so if I were to summarize that, that basically means that rather than uh, being in control of what an individual does, it sort of like goes by the saying of Steve Jobs, I hired the best people not to tell them what to do. Mm. Right. So if, if you believe that you have the best people, then all you have to do is create an environment which would allow people to independently strive to be their best. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, the critical thing, if when we look at workplace engagement around the world, workplace engagement seems to correlate with hierarchy. So the more hierarchical countries seem to have really low workplace engagement. Right. So, you know, lowest um, workplace engagement in the world is France. It's 3% of French employees, very hierarchical society. 3% of French employees say they're fully engaged in their job. It's like, it's it's a number that's so low, it, it makes you sort of go and just double check the methodology. <laughs> but we see similar yeah. numbers around the world. We, you know, in, in Holland, workplace engagement is about 14, 15%. It's incredibly low. And broadly, you've got this situation where that technology of human capability that we've identified, most people realize they've gone to their work, they've made three suggestions, Every time they've suggested something, their boss has said no. Correct. So they reach a stage where they're like, okay, Indifferent. I'm done with this. You know, now my job is to pretend that I'm engaged. Now oh. my job is anytime my boss says something to me, for, for me to nod and pretend this is a really good idea. <laughs> it's just, it's it's the tragedy of modern work. That's by no means uh, productive, right? That's right. And there's so many meetings, you know, like if I look at the agenda of certain people, right? I mean, people are busy. But does busy always mean are they creating new value? And I do question that. A lot of meetings, we have to be there because we, our face has to be there. Yeah, well, here's the remarkable thing. When you look into high-performance environments, generally what you find is that they're small, they're small units, they're small teams. The, um, you know, this is a strange thing, of course, that when you start adding people to a group, if you go from 20 people to 40 yeah. people, the number of relationships between those people doesn't grow in a linear way. No, it grows it's in exponential. A, in a exponential yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, by the time you reach 100 people, the amount of relationships is extraordinary. You double that to 200 and effectively people are in a zone where the amount of time they're spending maintaining those relationships actually becomes exhausting. Right. And this, this seems to be a critical thing. You know, can we be a bit more reductive about what people are setting out to do? So mm. their jobs are more uh, simplistic, but these less of the time spent maintaining those relationships. 
That's interesting. And I think that goes by also the importance of values rather than being prescriptive of what one should do. If we can communicate the guiding values of the organization and the bigger picture and align people and enable and maybe even in sort of empower people to be their best, collectively we can create much greater value. Yes. So now I mean, the space of um, work and education are very well linked, right? So because if we you know, want a certain behavior work, that is something which has to be cultivated from early on, from all the way being a toddler to higher education. Now, what would your advice that we are in an educational institution right now be to, to educators as well as young students maybe on how to navigate themselves in the space of uncertainty and advent of artificial intelligence? Yeah, um, I think self-directed learning seems to be one of the things that people find most fulfilling. So, you know, less lying down, laying down a prescriptive path of what people should do, but allowing people to to deviate and, and sort of navigate that to some extent. You know, over the next 10 years, the way that artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to transform a lot of things, I suspect is 20% predictable right now and 80% unpredictable. We, we, we will look back. I always think this. I always think sort of when we sit there, look, the, the most ubiquitous technology, our phones. But if someone said to you, what will your phone do in 10 years? Right. You could, I suspect we'll all have a guess which will start with a better screen and a better phone. And a, Twitter, a better camera. Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. A better camera, yeah, a better yeah, screen. No, yeah. And apart from that, you know, we, we can't even begin to imagine the capabilities. Indeed. And so to then take something like machine learning and artificial intelligence to try and suggest what those technologies will do for us just proves beyond the, the realm of human imagination. And so it's, it, as a result of that, preparing for things that probably are going to change, things that can rapidly develop and, and evolve around interest, I think it's really critical. Indeed. Um, good. So... Towards the end of the interview, there is uh, one thing I would ask is um, sort of your maybe advice uh, to 20 years, uh, 20 year old Bruce himself. So what would you tell yourself back in the day that this is how, well, if you were 20 right now, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, you know, I started off with, um, without a clear path of what I wanted to do, of, of how I wanted to develop. I, I sort of had a, a vague notion that I was, um, really obsessed with pop music, with music. So I wanted to work in a record company. I didn't end up getting to the chance to work in a record company. And so I started evolving my aspirations very short term. And that's, that served me quite well. You know, um, I was, I was obsessed with the internet from the moment I sort of saw the internet in a day, in the time and place where you needed to buy a desktop computer in your household. Right. I sort of was one of the first people to, to do that. And, and people at the time were a bit baffled why I would want this. Um, but, you know, I've always loved those things. Sort of following the things that interest you seems to be really critical. These, uh, there's a really interesting London business professor called uh, Scott Galloway. Oh, yes. and, and he says the advice for anyone is find what you're good at right. and work really hard at it. So rather than find what you're passionate about, mm-hmm. find what you're good at and work really hard at it. And there's, there's a, a large degree of truth in that. That's interesting. I mean, so Scott Galloway, he's in, uh, based in NYU right now, mm, right? right? So he's fantastic. Also, I follow some of his work. And there is an interesting relation between what you're good at and what you're passionate about. Now, so this is something which I was reflecting with a friend of mine. We're like, so what is passion and how does passion develop? 
right? And and um, like it's interesting to get your opinion on it. But to me, there is this causal effect that certain things that you were good at or you felt good about and early on, which you started developing upon, and then it overturned uh, time became passion. Yeah, and look, it's it's really complex. Um, it's it's not simple, is it? But I personally, I subscribe to the view that these um, we've we've allowed work to become our identities, mm -hmm. and the challenge of that is that firstly, it places an enormous burden upon people. So you know, Steve Jobs said, "You got to love what you do," right? And <laughs> it put, it's an Im immense pressure because I want you to look at sort of the the, the commuters coming into town tomorrow. And imagine, do, are they all meant to love what they do? Because right. the imperative of trying to do that is, to a large extent, unrealistic mm. and will lead to people feeling deeply dissatisfied with their lives. We know that comparison leads to unhappiness. It's why certain social platforms actually make people unhappy rather mm -hmm. than happy. Mm -hmm. Comparison leads to unhappiness. If we're meant to sit there all the time saying, do I love what I do? I think it's an unrealistic burden upon ourselves. But finding what you're good at and saying, I'm not going to be defined by this job, but I'm good at it. The more time I spend doing it, I seem to get better at it. Correct. I think that's a really, it's a realistic and achievable goal. Fantastic. And um, any final book recommendations? I know that The Joy of Work is a great book that I would recommend. And uh, what about yourself? Yeah, I've loved this year. I, I love the book by Johan Hari. It's called uh, Lost Connections. Okay. Um, if you pick it up in the bookshop, it's a, it's a sort of bestseller last year. But if you pick it up in a bookshop, it seems like it's a book about depression, but it's not a book about depression. It's about the human experience and how human beings seem to derive far more importance from being connected to others than we sometimes give it credit. So the, the way that he describes it is probably the moment that human that humans evolved 200,000 years ago, so such a small period of time away, um, was the moment where we started being more social right. and started connecting and collaborating with others. And it transformed this extraordinary growth path of, of development that we're on. And the way that Johan Hari describes it is that we're starting to disband our tribes. And the reason why it feels it feels dissatisfying is our brains are designed to be connected. Right. And so, you know, so much of what's happening with people feeling depressed we're, with this sort of, this era of a lack of empathy is because we've disbanded our tribes. And the book includes, I adore that book. It's such a fascinating exploration that we're seeing the symptoms of, but right. he goes to the root yeah. causes. Really interesting book. That's actually interesting and also quite ironic, right? So um, the fact that if, if I look at civilization that has grown, right, it's because of communities and how we have grown and connected our communities and improved the information sharing is that uh, is what actually led to progress. And, you know, initially was small societies, linear transforming, uh, sort of transition of that knowledge and further now, thanks to internet, the whole world is connected and we're continuously building up on knowledge of um, the entire world. So that's why we are exponentially growing at the same pace. Yeah. But at the same time, what we see is indeed um, people being disconnected and um, and one of the big studies done at Harvard was one of the longest um, training studies, right, where people over generations have been studied. and Brilliant piece of work, love that Indeed, work. right, and there's also a TED Talk based on that. And the whole idea was, well, it is about the, how many strong, meaningful relationships are there which ultimately determine happiness. Yeah, that's right. Happiness is connectivity. Is yeah. Happiness is family and friends. And I think sometimes we, we mistake that. Indeed. 
No, fantastic. Uh, so the last question is generally we ask is um, a prediction. And it's very difficult to predict anything at this point in time, but that's why we do ask that. So in your um, space of work, any prediction with a, you know, let's say a timeline, you choose a timeline, five or 10 years, um, something that you would like to predict, be it on social media and how people work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see a twin track of work where some places will get better. Yep. You know, that, that Microsoft uh, discussion is fascinating and, uh, and most places will get worse. And I think because the someone described to me the culture f- of work that's evolving in China. Right. And you might have already heard of the 996, which is n- working 9 o'clock to 9 o'clock, six right. days a week. Right. But someone said to me that there's become a default now where they use WeChat a bit like Slack and WhatsApp combined. <laughs> yes, exactly. sort of, and, uh, and if someone, a business contact, sends you a request on WeChat, they expect you to respond in 15 minutes, seven days a week. Now, that's remarkable. And I said that to someone in Britain. They said that will never happen here. Mm. And I I don't bet against it. I don't bet against (laughs) European norms becoming, people expect an instant response because human beings, when we ask people to judge their boss in work, (laughs) the number one thing they judge their boss on is how quickly their boss replies to their email. It's interesting, right? Right. Even though we might say that if our boss judged us like that, that's unfair, we expect, (laughs) reciprocated, we expect um, those things. And I I suspect that work will get worse for a lot of people because we're not taking the steps to improve these things. That's interesting. And and, uh, when, uh, let's say, the trend of companies giving company phones started, a lot of people thought saw it quite uh, received it with open gesture, right? It's like, wow, I get a you know p- new piece of hardware, which is exciting. But in reality, it added a few hours to our <laughs> work life. Mm. So, so those are the ways where we are, you know, the distinction between work and life has been reducing, and especially with quotes like that, and where we have this mission-driven companies where work and our own missions are very much aligned. That's also what we've seen, that that is the best way to motivate somebody is to align the company incentives with the personal incentives. Mm. So so the the gaps are sort of, you know, uh, the line between is being erased day by day. Good. Uh, so, so we uh, should conclude uh, due to time, but uh, it was fantastic having you on, uh, on the podcast. And um, for everybody who has a chance to read the book, Joy of Work, and subscribe to your podcast, maybe. Maybe a few words about your podcast. Yeah, my, my podcast was um, exploring the, my fascination with work, with, right. with fixing work. I, my podcast is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Um, it's a exploration into the science of how we can improve work. And so, you know, I, I chat to all manner of people who've studied this stuff. Right. The thing that really struck me was that there's no shortage of evidence of how we can make work better, but very little of it reaches people who have jobs. And that just struck me as like a massive gap that we need to fill. Indeed. And that's something which now people can subscribe to in their morning commute or on their way back. Great. Thank you. Great hosting you in Rotterdam. And yeah, good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.